Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you a selection of talks that took place at the 1888-2016 gathering held at the White Hart Pub at One Mile End in the East End of London over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of November 2016. The following presentation is by Neil R.A. Bell, the author of the immensely popular book Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of a Bobby in Victorian London, and who is regarded as a leading authority on 19th and early 20th century British policing. His talk is entitled Stories from H Divisions, and it's very interesting and informative, so without further ado, let's go to 1888-2016 and Neil Bell. Right, before I begin, I'd like to apologise. The title of this talk is actually um, Stories from H Division. It's somewhat misleading as we will be discussing other divisions, including City and London Police. Um, basically, the aim is just to give you a little insight into life as a policeman during the Victorian era. And to begin with, we should start with a name we all know the case of Inspector Adeline and the stolen brown mastiff, and King Charles Spaniel, brown Spaniel. Toy Terrier Haunted Bulldogs. On the 19th of April 1875, newly appointed local inspector Frederick Aberline was in Shoreditch High Street when a man passed by him with a bulldog on a lead. Being the street detective he was, Aberline recalled that the man also passed by him the day before, that time without a dog. Aberline stopped the man, Charles Burdick, and asked him where he'd gotten the animal. Burdick stated that the dog was his and that he bred them. Suspicious, Aberline took Burdick and presumably the dog to Commercial Street Police Station for further inquiries. Later, he visited Burdick's home in Bethnal Green and found the other dogs, the aforementioned King Charles Spaniel, Brown Spaniel, Toy Terrier and the two of the Bulldogs. Aberline suspected the dogs had been stolen. The report alludes to Burdick having previous convictions and I think it's reasonable to assume he was known to Aberline as a dog nipper. That is someone who stole dogs and then returned them to their owners in order to get the reward. In fact, the dog seen by Aberline with Burdick in Shoreditch High Street happened to be a prize winner at the Alexandra and Crystal Palace dog exhibitions, as well as competitions in the USA. It was worth around £60. Burdick was placed on remand pending further investigation. One of the most important documents pertaining to crime in Whitechapel during this period is this battered, pretty nondescript book. This scrapbook is the work of the man I've just been talking about, Chief Inspector Aberline and is made up of news clippings about cases of a note upon which it worked. Let's take a look at one of them. On the 3rd of June 1878, an inquest was held into the death of a baby at the Weaver's Arms public house on Baker's Road, today's Vance Road, slap on opposite the entrance which leads to Bucks Road, an area we know well today. Coroner Humphreys heard that 18-month-old Fanny Lazarus had, on the morning of the 1st of June, been found dead upon the doorstep of the family home in 4 Newcastle Street. The 1st of June was a Saturday in Savannah. Her father, Taylor Simon Lazarus, stated that the girl had been missing since 6 o'clock the previous Wednesday, which was the 29th of May, and that he had informed the police about this. The police then promptly circulated her description through the area. Now, referring to police procedure, these descriptions would have been issued to all beat constables during the mustering for beats, and instruction would have been given to keep an eye out for this girl. The person who found poor Fanny was cigar maker Joseph Barnett, a name we have all heard before, however, this is not the Joe Barnett we know. Barnett was born in 
Tom had spotted the ghost body as he passed by with some friends at around 1.15am. They immediately called for a constable who identified the girl as Fanny Lazarus and probably informed the family as he was carrying a, a dead body across the threshold into the house. A shocking moment, no doubt, for the poor girl's nearest and dearest. Assistant Divisional Surgeon Takes Division, Dr. Edward Crouch, confirmed the cause of death as drowning. And as the girl's body was found nowhere near water, the only conclusion the police could reach was death by, by suspicious circumstances. Crouch also noted, curiously, that the body was covered with sand and her hair was matted with it. The case now transferred over to H Division Local Inspector, Adeline, and his team of detectives. As Fanny's cause of death was drowning, Abilene logically decided to target the nearest location where, which would hold a sizable amount of water, the Basham Wash Houses in Goulston Street, outlined in yellow there, at the back of which was Castle Alley, not far from the Lazarus' home. The rough location is the blue dot right at the top of the picture. Upon his arrival at the bathhouse, Abilene and Detective Sergeant Foster noted that the building work had been underway at the rear of the building, again Castle Alley side. Not only that, they also noted two barrels, one containing water and the other sand. Abilene then interviewed the bathhouse attendant, Peter Windsor, and, unsatisfied with what he was being told, arrested the man. However, due to lack of evidence to charge, Windsor was released on bail pending further inquiries. These inquiries included the questioning of Fanny's father, Simon Lazarus, who told of a peculiar incident which occurred not long after his daughter had been found dead prior to the inquest. Lazarus stated that Windsor, a man Lazarus had not seen before, had asked him if he could view the body, which Lazarus permitted. Upon seeing the girl laid out in the parlour, Lazarus stated Windsor felt the girl's head and legs and began to tremble. After guiding Windsor to a chair, Lazarus then said that Windsor placed his head in his hands and exclaimed, Leave it all to me, I'll make it all right. Windsor then asked Lazarus to show him where the body was found. This Lazarus did, pointing to a step. At which moment Windsor corrected him, stating, No, it was the middle step. Windsor also pointed out that the girl's clothes were not wet from the bottom down, a fact not many outside the family and investigation team knew prior to inquest. Despite this story, the evidence to convict Windsor of the murder was simply not there, and the jurors returned a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. This was to be a familiar verdict to Adeline some ten years later. Those who have read my book will recall a passage where I explained the cooperative work which existed between the City of London Police and the Met Police. However, things did not always run smoother. The following is taken from a report by City's Detective Frederick Lawler of the City's main detective department at Old Jura. He is actually one of the men you see here, although I've not been able to pinpoint which one he is. Anyway, Lawler's report stated that in July 1880, K Division CID man. Sergeant Smith walked to the City of London No. 5 Subdivision Station in Seething Lane, near to the Tower of London, and asked to speak to an available sir, Met CRD man about a man named Joyce. The name Joyce was something City Detective Constable Harding, uh, sorry, the, the name Joyce meant something City Detective Harding. It was, along with the name Archer, an alias used by a City fraudster known to him as Morris. So he was interested in what PC Smith had to say. As the pair sat down in the reserve room, Smith informed Hardy that he had received information on Morris, which stated that he was a frequent drinker at the Mile End Gate Tavern, situated on the Whitechapel Road, which is basically out of the window here. The tavern was, in 1880, part of K Division's patch before becoming H Division's responsibility in 1886. 
Harding confirmed that he'd also received similar information and that arrangements were already in the process of being made between the city and Met for the arrest of Morris. Smith suggested they move now. He also suggested he and Harding rendezvous the following night at Annette's public house on the Mile End Road and make the short progress to the tavern to effect the arrest of Morris, which would be made by the city of police and assisted by the netman Smith. Harding agreed and on the 21st of July entered Annette's with city constables 749 Davidson and 171 Sagar, a name familiar to many ripologists. City detective Frederick Lawler, who compiled the final report, also went along. The agreed meeting time with the next uh, DS, man, uh, DS Smith was 7.30. So when the clock passed 8.30pm and there was no sign of Smith, senior man Lawley decided to take action himself. Firstly, he sent PC Davison to the Mile End Gates Tavern to see if the suspect Morris was still there. The bill, uh, sorry, Davison reported back that he was indeed inside. Lawley, along with Harding, um, went to the tavern and directly into the private compartment where PC Davison stated he'd seen the suspect. It was now empty. The landlord, a man named Mr Benjamin, then became involved, confronting the detectives in the passageway. The landlord declared that he knew the men were detectives and that he also knew why they were there. However, he had promised Morris to K-Division Smith and revealed that Detective Smith had already been inside the tavern that night at 6pm and was due to come back at 10pm, at which point, according to the landlord, um, he would give K-Division Detective a signal that Smith would then move in on his man to an effect an arrest. The city boys, upon hearing this change of action, of which they had not been informed, and possibly making a point to the landlord uh, that they were calling the shots here, decided to turn the tavern upside down in an attempt to find the missing suspect. Alas, they could not. They suspected the landlord had assisted Morris in his escape by letting him through the passage by the door, which was suspiciously locked at the time, that led to the parlour, and then at the end of which were the back stairs. These stairs led to a door which opened out onto a low-level flat roof, and the detectives suspected Morris climbed out onto this roof, made a small drop into the yard, and looped back round onto the Whitechapel Road, where he mingled easily into the hustle and bustle of East End. The report ends with Morris' escape, and we do not know if he was ever captured. Nor do we know the fallout between the city and Mets K-Division CRD. However, I suspect there were terse words exchanged in memorandums between the two over the days after the event. At 5pm on Wednesday the 1st of September 1888, Lima Street Duty Sergeant PS8H John Smith was presented with a drunken incapable by PC139H Slade. Drunken incapables differ from drunken disorder in as much, obviously, the drunkards are unable to look after themselves as opposed to causing disorder. Usually these types of drunks are quiet and inoffensive. When arrested, they would commonly be placed in the cells to sober up and let out on their way with a word in their ear. Constable Slade informed his superior that he'd noted the drunk in Whitechapel High Street. And whilst he was able to give a name and address, he was unable to say or do much more. The drunk's name was Dr John Hughes, who once practised at Woodbridge in Suffolk. Alas, this 40-year-old's addiction to drink had cost him that practice, and he spiralled deeper into alcoholism. Hughes was placed into a cell. However, in doing this, the police made quite an unbelievable error by today's standards. They did not search Dr Hughes. Whilst the police code, the Bob's instruction book of the time is clear in its direction regarding the obligatory searching of prisoners, it wasn't to be published until 1881, a year after this event. That said, individual procedures were in place at other police stations. However, 
Leaving Street adopted a more relaxed approach to their drunken incapables, only searching them when they were deemed a danger to themselves or others, and then at the arresting constable's discretion. Dr Hughes was not thought to be such a risk by Constable Slade. It was to be a fatal mistake. At 6.05pm, Reserve Constable 221H John Gallagher checked in on the sleeping Dr Hughes, and again at 6.25pm, asking him if he was alright. Hughes replied simply with a monotone yes. At 7pm, Gallagher was at his desk, taking down the description of two missing children from their worried parents, when he heard a commotion from Dr Hughes' cell. Looking through the fish-eye spy hole in the door, Constable Gallagher could see Dr Hughes slumped against the cell door, and immediately called for the inspector. Once help had arrived, the door was eventually opened, and the body of Dr Hughes was found lying in a pool of blood with a cut throat, and neatly placed on the bench beside him was a small bloody pocket knife. Dr Lane was sent for, and he confirmed that, his, that Dr Hughes was dead due to the severance of the corrupted archer. It was seen that Dr Hughes had the knife on his person when he was initially brought into Leaving Street Police Station. The inquest returned a verdict of suicide whilst within sound mind, and the deceased brother, also a doctor, Robert Hughes, supported that verdict. The jury also apportioned no blame to the policemen of Leaving Street. However, they expressed the hope that the current legislation concerning the search of drunken prisoners will be passed, as sadly this must be too late for Dr Hughes. The attempting bombing of Commercial Street Police Station. Abalone was in the news again in 1885. And this due to the trial of Phoenix Terrace, Burton and Cunningham, in the investigation of which Abalone played a strong part. On Thursday the 5th of March 1885, just before 10pm, and this is the night patrol bobbies were mustering for the duty. A respectably dressed woman entered Commercial Street Police Station in a state of great excitement and distress. And, as the Ipswich Journal put it, made an extraordinary statement. The woman, who was a stranger in the area, told duty inspector that she had been stopped just outside the station in Commercial Street by a man carrying a parcel. He stated that he, if she would place the parcel upon the doorstep of the police station for him, he would give her two sovereigns. He continued telling her that no one would take any notice of a woman doing such a act and advised that once she had placed the parcel that she should flee the immediate area or the consequences would be far worse than she imagined. It was at that point she became alarmed, noting the man had an Irish accent and fearing involvement with the Fiend Brigade who had been terrorising London, she declined the man's offer. Well, if, you don't want to, if you don't want to earn two of these easily, I can find somebody who would gladly do it for you, the man replied nonchalantly before briskly walking away. The woman, at that moment, spotted a constable and went over to tell him what had just happened to her, pointing out the fleeing man as she did so. The constable, defying his duty, merely laughed, her, laughed off her accusation. However, the woman wasn't to be put off, and walked right into Commercial Street Police Station to report the incident to the duty inspector there. He, believing her statement, took her name and address, and then instructed a number of plainclothes constables to post themselves around the station and keep a very close watching brief. Other constables were dispatched into Whitechapel in hopes of finding the man carrying the parcel. Alas, they were unsuccessful. As stated, this event occurred round the moment of Chandler, when one beat shift finished and another began. Those arriving at the beat back at the beat station, sorry, those arriving back at the station were questioned on if they'd seen a suspicious man whilst out on their beats. And those about to conduct their beats were instructed to keep an eye open for this jam. Observations were kept on Commercial Street Police Station throughout the night, but nothing occurred there. 
or anyone else. Reba's arms featured again in our next story. This time it's to do with another inquest held there. PC 172 Thomas Rose was walking his beat in the middle of the spring afternoon in May 1886 when he came across a man who was described in this news cutting of the incident as a Jew lying in the pavement. He was, according to the constable, around 80 years of age, extremely dirty, dressed in a brown coat, waistcoat, fist and trousers, galoshes, a seemingly white shirt and a hard felt hat. It was clear to PC Rose that the man, who was insensible, was also destitute. The constable immediately hailed a passing cab and took the man to the Union Infirmary in Mile End. Sadly, the man died the next day, and post-mortem revealed that he was actually around 60 to 70 years of age, not 80 as initially thought, that he'd been suffering from neglect, exposure and want of food, and that cause of death was disease of the lungs brought on by his mode of life. A verdict of death by destitution was recorded. He was never identified. Probably one of the most common situations faced by H Division Bobbies during this period was that of lost children. In a period when children were turned out to find work at an early age, or if they were unable to find employment, left to fend for themselves outside most of the day at best, one can understand how children became detached from their families. One of the crowd, a non-diploma used by a Northern Gazette investigative reporter, looked into this issue in an 1886 expose on the lost children of Bethnal Green. The report stands, reporter stands, sorry, rightly or wrongly, was one of the noise, citing that these children were a lasting burden uh, on the red pale, continuing that many of these children were not mere helpless infants, but little folk of three, four, and even five years old. So, from a policing aspect, what was to happen to these lost children? Firstly, they would be taken to the nearest police station, with the word put round the beat bobbies this child had been found. These beat bobbies would make inquiries as they conducted their beats, and basically put the word out that the child had been found, and that anyone missing their son or daughter should proceed to the sighted police station. Meanwhile, the child would be looked after, most commonly by a female jailer, known as a police matron. The questionnaire was sent to all divisions in the 1890s, asking for what reasons police matrons were used at their stations. I won't read them all, but here are a few examples. H, uh, sorry, D Division replied, insensibility, hysteria, fits, attempted suicide, murder, manslaughter, concealment of birth, rape, indecent assault, sudden illness. J Division's response was, attempted suicide, advanced pregnancy, insensibility, and strangely, when drenched with wet, I assume this is to aid the female or child prisoner in changing clothes. H, H Division's simple reply was, when necessity arises. Here is a list of distances police matrons lived from all metropolitan police stations, and here's a closer look at uh, H Division's. Lima Street, 440 yards, Commercial Street, 500 yards, Arbor Square, 150 yards, and Shadwell, 300 yards. If the child was not claimed, they would be sent to the nearest workhouse, where they would now be interrogated by the workhouse master. These lost children were now the parish's problem. One of the crowd goes on to detail such an exchange between a master and a lost boy named Tommy, who stated that his sister ran off and left him in the street. Master, what does your father work at? Tommy, don't know. Master, what school do your brothers and sisters go to? Tommy, don't know. Master, what is the name of the public house near your home? Tommy, don't know. <laughs> Master, what's your name? Tommy. Tommy, 
<laughs> yes, but Tommy what? Tommy, repeating. Tommy. The master. It's of no use. Take him through. Perhaps someone make him quiet for him. By the reporter's account, Tommy faces interrogated without a tremor or sniff, and quietly made his way to the workhouse children's ward to join the many others. One of the crowd visited Tommy the next day in infant class and noted he was a child who was quick and intelligent. Six months passed when, out of the blue, a woman entered the workhouse children's ward and exclaimed upon seeing Tommy, well hang me if it ain't your Mark Donovan. Tommy's response, I don't know, I've never seen her before. <laughs> However, the woman claimed she knew Tommy's parents, who lived in Campbellwell, and the parents were sent for. And Mr Donovan duly arrived. Once faced with Tommy, he confirmed that the child was his offspring, Mike Donovan. Why didn't you inquire after him, asked the workhouse master of the boy's father. I did, replied Mr Donovan, dabbling an emotional eye with his handkerchief. Everywhere I could think of, but you didn't apply at the police station. No, I didn't think of that. <laughs> no, at the workhouse. No, I didn't think of that either. <laughs> Any idea why he called himself Tommy? No, apart from his love of lying and his fear of getting discovered. It would seem that Tommy was indeed a quick and intelligent boy and had used the parochial system to obtain shelter, food and some respite from the hardships the poor had to endure during this period. It would also seem that the Donovan family were in on the jig and were equally happy for the parish to feed and shelter their offspring as it eased the burden upon themselves. As long as police constables who bear false witness are being punished by being told that their behaviour is very unsatisfactory, it is only to be expected that they will freely perjure themselves in order to back one another up. So read the opening lines into a report in the Palmar Gazette dated the 12th of September 1887. It was in relation to a case where two postmen named Harrison and Dumbrell were accused of beating up a City of London policeman named McPhee, whilst the latter was in the middle of conducting his duty. Constable McPhee stated that one of the men, Harrison, punched him in the eye and was so badly and so bad was the damage caused that he was in hospital for a week. To support his story, City of London Police Constable George Henry Hort, yes, the jailer who kept an eye at the rip of victim Catherine Evans while she was held at Bishopsgate Police Station, backed his brother Constable McPhee up, stating he had witnessed the assault. However, there was a problem with the validity of the story. That problem came in the guise of other witnesses who told a completely different version of events. They said that Constable McPhee actually started the incident by hitting Harrison to the floor. Harrison, once down, sprang to his feet and in self-defence hit back at his assailant. Upon hearing this from the numerous independent witnesses, the case was thrown out of court. It was seen the Palmer Gazette were correct in suggesting that false testimony by policemen went unpunished during this period. You may not be able to see, but from this hut service record here, this incident is not actually mentioned at all. Mrs. Adelaide Ross was a widow from Bayswater who, on the evening of Friday 18th of November 1887, found herself standing on an unspecified corner of Commercial Street in an omnibus queue. Cornelius Mine, 25, was a labourer living in George Street, Spitterfields, who, by seeming happenstance, found himself in front of the widow Ross at the very same time. As Mrs. Ross was about to hail the omnibus, she felt a violent movement coming from within her waterproof clothes. Quickly she quickly realised that her watch was being removed, and before she could really react, noted Marnie swiftly turned and went away with it. Mrs Ross started to chase him, and did so for some considerable distance, shouting for assistance as she tried to pursue Marnie. No one came to her aid. Having lost sight of the man, 
Mrs Ross broke off in the pursuit and stopped at Commercial Street Police Station to report her loss. As she was giving details, a police constable brought the very man who had been standing in front of her to the desk, Cornelius Miner. It would seem Miner was part of a pickpocket gang who was under surveillance by Detective John West and H Division CID, but who, unfortunately, had lost sight of them just prior to the robbery of Mrs Ross. However, an experienced borrower, unconnected to the CID team, spotted Miner sprinting along Commercial Street and suspecting his flight was due to no good, decided to move in and arrest him. Once at the station, Miner declared that he'd done nothing wrong, and as no watch was found on his person, there was little evidence to detain him. However, Mrs Ross positively identified Miner as the thief. Fearing the man would flee once he was freed, the police sought permission from a magistrate to hold Miner whilst they sought more evidence. Magistrate Hanny granted the police permission to hold Miner on remand for one week, pending the outcome of the search for Widow Ross's watch. The next story occurred over the festive period of 1887 and involved H Division's neighbours, the City of London Police. The following is taken from a Lloyd's newspaper report and I shall read it in full. A charge of a child murder by a mother. A woman named Alice Graves, 21 years of age, of 18 Thrall Street, Spitterfields, was charged with willfully murdering her male child aged 14 months between 12 and 1 o'clock Christmas morning by throwing it over the parapet of London Bridge into the River Thames. Police Constable Haddon of the City of London Police stated that while on duty on London Bridge on Tuesday morning at about 2 o'clock, the prisoner came to him and said she had thrown her infant into the river on the previous morning. She appeared to be under the influence of drink, but seemed to understand perfectly what she was saying. He took her to the station. On the way to the justice room, this is a reference to the court the following day, Constable Haddon said to her, Now this is a serious matter. Do you, now that you're in sober senses, adhere to what you told me? She replied, I know I am a mother. The prisoner, who made no remark when charged in the dock, was remanded to have an investigation made into her state of mind. It was stated at first that the child had got out of the river and immediately taken to St Bartholomew's Hospital where it died later within the course of an hour. But it subsequently said that the child, oh sorry, it was subsequently said that the police had no information of any child being found. Now some of you may note may have noted the young mother's address, 18 Pearl Street. This address was, in fact, a common lodging house named Wilmots. Wilmots was to hit the press headlines again during the Ripper scare, as it was where both Mary Ann Nichols and Francis Coles stayed prior to their murders. A smart constable in uniform on a machine is rather a agreeable sight, as I'm sure you would agree to now. <laughs> Not the words of Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren, pictured here, but of his Coventry counterpart, Chief Constable John Norris. And the machine in question was this, the Royal Salvo Tricycle. Brief history about this machine. The Royal Salvo was a creation of Coventry cyclist James Styler, and started out life simply named the Salvo. He wanted to create a machine that was easy for women to use even whilst they were wearing their cumbersome clothing, which was the fashion of the Victorian period. The Royal came, part came in 1882. Queen Victoria had ordered two, and she used them to get around the grounds of Osborne House. So pleased was she with these, with, was she with these trikes that she endorsed it, allowing the, word, the use of the word Royal in its name. No doubt if alive today, Her Majesty would have donned the lycra as she zoomed down, zoomed down Paramount. You see, not long after the murders of Elizabeth Stroud and Catherine Eddowes, 
on the 16th of October to be precise, Warren had written to Morris in relation to this advert, inquiring on how his Coventry force were utilising the contraption called a tricycle. Two days later, Norris responded. He told Ryan that the cost of these machines came to around 18 guineas each and that they were predominantly used by night duty inspectors when they did their rounds from station to station across Coventry. The fact that they were relatively noiseless was a bonus and the speed a constable could get up to when pursuing an escaping villain along the high road meant that the quarry was, more often than not, captured. They were also used to make summonses calls across all parts of the city as well as aiding the inquiry in making. Norris ended the letter by stating, a smart constable uniform on machine is rather an agreeable sign. It was seen that Warren wasn't impressed with this royal server, as the idea was soon shelved at his end. However, around the mid-1890s, it was noted that by the powers of B in the Met that their constables were arriving for duty riding bicycles. Some years later, a review was taken to see how these machines would aid the police in their work. And in 1904, the Met created Bicycle Duty, where a number of constables would parade the outer reaches of the Met's jurisdiction on bicycles. However, these bikes had to be purchased and maintained by the constables themselves, with an allowance being provided by the Met to cover the costs. Whilst Warren did, take, did not take up the option of the tricycle, it is an example of his willingness to explore the use of modern technology. This perhaps contrasts with the view held by some of the bumbling out-of-touch commissioner. Warren, it would seem, is quite the innovator. <laughs> the date was the 11th of November 1888, less than a week after the horrific murder of Mary Kelly by Jack the Ripper, and Mrs. Humphreys was making her way from her second floor apartment to the outhouse in George Yard buildings, this to empty her chamber pot slots when she came across a map. All hell then broke loose, as a startled Mrs. Humphreys started screaming, Murder! Police! As stated, this was days after the Mary Kelly murder, and in a location where disputed ripper victim Martha Tabling had been found murdered some pre months previously. Tensions were high, and almost immediately a crowd began to gather to protect the poor Mrs. Humphreys. Amongst the crowd were H Division Sergeant Ernie and Constable 22HR, and they managed to get to Mrs. Humphreys and the man who, surprisingly, made no attempt to flee. Inquiries by the policemen revealed the truth. Firstly, Mrs. Humphreys was partially sighted, and therefore did not recognise the man as her daughter's boyfriend. So she, so she called down to the young man and asked who was there. Secondly, and this really did compound the situation, Mrs. Humphreys' daughter's boyfriend had a stammer. So when challenged by Mrs. Humphreys, he struggled to reply. <laughs> Upon hearing the man blurt out an unintelligible answer, Mrs. Humphreys, still not recognising, felt he was some sort of lunatic and screamed out in terror. Once the incident had been resolved, one can imagine the sheepish Mrs. Humphreys explaining what had happened to her no doubt perplexed and angry daughter whilst making a, an appointment to see Spetsailors. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Dooley was a pawnbroker in Whitechapel High Street. However, he was away on the Saturday, the 3rd of September 1894. So it was his assistant, Mr. Gridler, who dealt with the young lady who had just walked into the shop with a fine pair of ophthalmoscopes. That was easy to say. <laughs> the young lady was 21 year old 
Beatrice Major and seemed somewhat out of sorts with the medical profession according to Rudler, so he asked questions. Major stated that she had bought the ophthalmoscopes off a medical student at London Hospital. Suspicious, quickly obtained the items and notified the police. Detective Inspector Abbott and Sergeant Scrimmer, who were, ha were handed the case, and immediately set about establishing where these items came from. Their inquiries led them to this place, 6 Eldon Street, the home of City of London Police Surgeon Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown. Yes, the same Dr. Brown involved in the Catherine Eddowes case. On the first day, the 1st of November, she called at Dr. Brown's Clinton Circus practice, complaining of ill health, and was shown to the consulting room by Dr. Brown's servant, Mr. Swain. <coughs> when Dr. Brown arrived some 15 minutes later, Major was gone, and so were the ophthalmoscopes. Major was subsequently arrested and tried. Alderman Morgan sentenced her to six months imprisonment with hard labour. It transpired during the trial that Beatrice Major had a habit of robbing doctors, having only just completed a nine-month stretch for theft from three surgeries. No one knows why Michael Hayes did it. We can only suggest that a tormented life came too much for him. Anyway, sometime during the night on Wednesday the 25th of November 1891, Hayes found himself on the River Thames shoreline at Tower Hill, Tower Hill Stairs, near to the Tower of London and the partially constructed tower bridge you see here. The stairs are marked with a red arrow for your convenience. It was high water tide and Tower Hill Stairs was located at one of the deepest parts of the Thames. As I said, whatever possessed Michael Hayes to do it, we will never know. However, he did do it. He stepped forward and launched himself into the proverbial icy waters below. However, Hayes was not alone. Observing him from afar was this man. Hayes Division Constable 239H, William Pennant. He was passing on his beat. As soon as Hayes took his leap, Pennant took action. He swiftly removed his belt and lamp and followed Hayes into the Thames. The easy part was conducted early in the rescue as Pennant swiftly located the floundering Hayes. However, a struggle ensued as Pennant fought to drag his man back to the Thames, uh, back to the Thames shoreline. Eventually, the constable, still dressed in his heavy greatcoat and clothing iron, managed to drag an equally clothed Hayes back to the stairs. Cold, wet and exhausted, the rescue was complete. Great pomp and circumstance arrived at Hayes Division's HQ in Lima Street some months later, on the 17th of June 1891. As the Met Commissioner, Colonel Sir Edward Bradford, arrived to present Constable Pennant with the Royal Humane Society Silver Medal for bravery. It is apt that we end our journey with PC Pennant and his act of bravery, a positive note to finish on. David Thompson is a blue boat guard, whose great-grandfather was a Whitechapel Bobby back in the Victorian era. Many of us here were fortunate enough to hear David speak at RIPCON 21 a few months ago. David's great-grandfather was PC 248 Ernest Thompson, pictured here. As some of you will know, young Ernest was the constable who found the last of the Ripper victims in the Whitechapel murder file, Francis Coles, in February 1891. This was on his very first beat, on his very first night alone. He had joined the Mets some few months previously in November 1890. And just over 10 years later, in December 1900, PC Thompson was stabbed to death in a brawl on Commercial Road. During that briefest of career spans, Ernest Frank remained at constable level. He walked the same streets he walked when he started. There was no doubt that he would be known to nearly all in that area, both decent and villainous. 
he was your atypical community bobber. His funeral was attended by thousands, constables and members of the public alike. Yes, the stories are tragic, as Ernest left behind a loving wife and young family. However, in grief, the people of Whitechapel mustered in unity and stood in memoriam as one with his loved ones, including the men. Those words uttered by David Thompson about his great-grandfather summed up the role of constable no matter what the generation or the location. He simply stated that Ernest was an ordinary man doing an extraordinary job. Those words are never truer for a bobber, be it in Whitechapel in 1888 or any city, town or village in 2016. If there's one thing I'd like you to take away from my ramblings today about Victorian policemen, it's those words. Ordinary men doing an extraordinary job. And finally, before you descend into rapturous applause, I'd like to play this for you. from H Division. I would like to thank Neil for allowing Rippercast to release his talk from the 1888-2016 gathering and also give a huge thank you to Mark Ripper, Jackie Murphy, and Robert Anderson for making this event and the recordings of it all possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by the website casebook.org where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations on Jack the Ripper and Victorian and Edwardian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about our programs, feel free to find us on Facebook or Twitter simply by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.